Welcome to the Novel Romantics Literature of Chicago podcast series at the America Zentrum Hamburg. I'm the host of Novel Romantics, Douglas Cowie. I'm a writer and teacher. In each episode of this series, my guests and I will discuss a work of fiction set primarily in Chicago. For this episode, we'll be discussing The Lazarus Project by Alexander Heyman, which was first published in 2008. And my guest today is Robert Eaglestone. Robert Eaglestone is Professor of Contemporary Literature and Thought at Royal Holloway University of London. He works on contemporary literature and literary theory, contemporary philosophy, and on Holocaust and genocide studies, and on the teaching of literature. He's the author of eight books, including Contemporary Fiction from 2013, and most recently, Truth and Wonder, A Literary Introduction to Plato and Aristotle, published in 2022, which is a great book, by the way, and the editor or co-editor of 10 further books, including Brexit and Literature, published by Routledge in 2018, and The Routledge Companion to 21st Century Literary Fiction, published in 2019. He's been consulted by the UK's Department for Education on Literature Education and is on the UK Holocaust Memorial Foundation Academic Advisory Board. Welcome, Bob. Lovely to be here. Today we're going to discuss, as I said, The Lazarus Project by Alexander Heyman. And um, I guess the, the best place to start with this book is that it's got two different narrative strands to it. One is an imagining of an, a real life event from 1908, when uh, a young man called Lazarus Averbuch, a Jewish Ukrainian immigrant who had settled in Chicago with his sister after fleeing pogrom in, in Russia and Ukraine, ended up in Chicago. And he then ends up at the home of the police commissioner who shoots him and kills him. And so part one strand is the recreation of that storyline and, and more or less the aftermath of that shooting. The novel starts, that narrative strand starts with that shooting and then, and then follows the aftermath of it. And the second strand is the story of a novelist or a writer called Alexander Brick, who is a Bosnian immigrant who has arrived in Chicago in 1992 and missed the siege of Sarajevo and has settled in Chicago and is trying to recreate the story. So you're getting the story that he recreates, I guess, and also the story of him trying to figure out how to tell this story about Lazarus. Does that seem like a accurate summary to you? Yeah, yeah, it does. I guess my question for you is like, what do these stories have to do with each other? I mean, everything and nothing feels like the cheap answer. So I, I, I love this book. So Doug introduced me to it uh, about 10 years ago, and I've taught it since then. And I had the great pleasure of rereading it. And um, thinking about what links those two stories seems to me to be, as you say, it means everything and nothing. On the one hand, it seems to be crucial to how the novel works. On the other hand, I don't know how they link. I mean, they're linked. I mean, it sounds really simple. They're linked through the title, The Lazarus Project, because both bits of the story are about are about bringing the bed, dead back to life, what's at stake in that, what's possible in that, if you can do that, what happens when when the dead are brought back, different kinds of death, literal, metaphorical kind of narrative, and pulling those two those two things together, and, and it also struck me that this book is 
there's there's now a whole kind of genre or subgenre of of literary fiction or literary non-fiction I'm not quite sure what it is in which you get the writer telling you the the story of somebody like a kind of biography or a, something in someone's life and also the writer's own kind of experience and trying to uncover or tell that story and this seems to me both a uh, as it were an early and outstandingly interesting version of, of that and thinking about what links them together and what links the Avonbrook story and the uh, Brick story together seems to me crucial. So all the way through the Brick story, he keeps talking about the shooting in Chicago and it's full of weird kind of resurrections. So the the friend of the shooter is kind of resurrected from hiding in a toilet. And indeed, uh, there's a scene right at the end where they pretend to rebury the shooter and somebody's hiding in his coffin. So there are all these kind of resurrections. I should point out that he's not the shooter. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> he's I bet, the I shot. Bet sorry. I'll he gets, away. It's like, so, it's like yeah, one yeah. of the points of that story, one of the <laughs> whole points of the Lazarus um, story is that he gets immediately portrayed as a, as a would-be assassin, yeah. except that he never really was a would-be assassin. He, had a, he was delivering yeah, a message to the police chief and was, was shot seven times but didn't have a gun himself and, and never seemed to pose a threat. You're falling into the mainstream media trap, Bob. <laughs> I am. I am. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, Brick, the novelist, is, is going back and trying to make alive all these all these dead things that happened, all the things that happened in, in, the, in the war in former Yugoslavia, resurrecting stories of dead people, and indeed, there's a running story uh, about a, a kind of high-up gangster all the way through the Brick storyline, which kind of emerges more powerfully. So there's a, there's the a couple of things there that <clears throat> that you've hit on that I want to talk about specifically. So the, the the gangster story, he's called Rambo in the telling of it, comes through. What happens in the in the telling of in the the way I think of this is the there's the story of Lazarus, and then there's the story of the Lazarus Project. And the Lazarus Project is this Brick story that we're talking about. And in that Lazarus Project story, Alexander Brick and his friend Rora, who's a photographer who he runs into at the beginning at a, at a Bosnian independence banquet, travel to Ukraine and eventually Sarajevo, retracing some of the places where Lazarus Averbuch was from and had been. So he was... He was he escaped from the pogrom and then ended up in a, as a refugee for a bit and escaped the refugee camp and, and ended up emigrating to America. And, and part of what Brick is doing is tracing his own, some of his own uh, family heritage through those things because there's some overlap. But the whole time, Rora is telling him these stories about the siege of Sarajevo and the, the wider Bosnian war because Brick himself hasn't experienced it. And he also is telling him jokes um, all the way through. He tells them four or five different jokes featuring these two characters, which I want to maybe touch on at some point as well. Because I think there's one of them in particular that is really relevant or really is like the kind of key joke to some of this, what all this storytelling is about. But the, uh, the, the story of the gangster becomes a real obsession for Brick. It's also a real obsession for a journalist within that story called William Miller who's a New York Times journalist who's who's kind of embedded himself with this gangster. You hear lots of tell of him 
uh, and the things that he does and the things that he tells about this gangster. And Brick is always kind of asking too many questions about these stories that keep getting shut off. And there's, yeah, there's just this proliferation of questions and stories. What do you think he's trying to do with that? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So, so it seems to me that one of Brick's key concerns is that is that although he's Bosnian, he's totally missed he's totally missed the war, and his friend Rora, who was president at the siege of Sarajevo, keeps saying, "Oh, like you're a nice bookish man, you don't know anything about this. We don't yeah. want to talk about this." And, and so he's got a kind of absence, uh, like a almost a traumatic absence. So there's a there's there's a passage that might help illustrate that that I just want to read out, and then we can maybe talk about it further because it, it this happens the, the thing that you said about you're a nice bookish man comes quite late on where he's like rora's sick of brick constantly saying yeah but what about this what about this he's like just listen to the story and there's a whole thing early on about the bosnian way of telling stories versus a kind of american way of telling stories yeah and yeah. what's interesting about that is that in listening to rora tell him these stories these bosnian stories he's he's interacting with them like an american and not like a Bosnian, and he's always kind of fluctuating between his Bosnianness, um, which is also a Ukrainianness because he's partly of Ukrainian heritage, and his Americanness that he's reluctant to accept, and but which he is also adapting to and, and adopting. But anyway, at the at the in the yeah. very early stages of the novel, when he's he's at this um, banquet, as I said, for the independence of Bosnia, and he and he meets Rora, and this is what they say to each other. I see you never gave up photography. I said, I took it up again in the war. He said, I knew from experience that if I, I who had left just before the beginning and missed the whole shebang were to ask a Bosnian about the war, my question could easily lead to a lengthy monologue about the horrors of war and my inability to understand what it was really like. I was self-trained to avoid falling into that situation. But this time I asked, were you in Sarajevo for the whole siege? No, he said, just for the best parts. I came here in the spring of 1992, I said, unasked. You were lucky, he said, and I was about to object when a whole family approached him demanding a photo. The burly, bespectacled father, the burly, short-armed mother, two burly girls with shimmeringly combed hair. They all lined up, stiffened up, and bared their burly teeth for eternal memory. Rora. So, like, this is this is the crux of it. Like, <laughs> he really desperately needs to know, needs to feel the things that everyone he loves and knows feel felt in the siege of Sarajevo, but is, but can't cause he didn't. And cause he didn't experience it. And th that you were lucky. He said, and I was about to object is the whole tension there, right? Like he, he was lucky, but yeah. also he yeah, feels yeah. very unlucky for having, you know, there's this thing that has been torn away from him, not just the city, but the experience of the city and the experience of all these people he loved in the city and it's a very complicated thing. It plays out in, in really complicated ways in, in some of the stories in, in Alexander Hamon's first book, um, The Question of Bruno. There's there's some really excellent stories about about exactly that feeling that kind of excavate that feeling in that story in that book. But anyway. Well, and and it's it's doubly intense for him because he's a writer, and the job of the writer is to uncover and explain things that are, you know, hard to hard to explain, hard to explore. And that tension goes right through his writing and it's also in the very first sentence of the of the first two sentences of the book the time and place the only things i'm certain of march 2nd 1908 chicago beyond that is the haze of history and pain and now i plunge so right at the beginning you're being told that even in the 
even in the story of of Lazarus mm-hmm. gunned down by the police chief, he's reconstructing it and it's kind of made up and a story, and yet he's he's kind of desperate to get to the real thing but can't and it's the same thing with the Lazarus project bit of the book as well he's desperate to get to the real thing and he can't and that and that leads to the really tragic kind of pinchesque bit right at the end where his traveling companion is gunned down he thinks it's part of a huge uh, plot a narrative that he's kind of constructed and put together and it turns out to be a, just a, a totally random drug killing yeah well, not even a drug killing, just a killing by a drug addict. Yeah, and, yeah. And and in, in the aftermath of that, the sister of Rora spells out the truth of all these behind all these gangster stories that have just been a, and and he the thing is he warns you about this early in the novel. He he talks about this Bosnian storytelling where you you exaggerate and and make things up for the sake of the story. I mean, this isn't particular to Bosnia either, but it's but he's 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 defining it for the terms of the, of the novel as this, this Bosnian thing in this, in this case. Um, and, and it's about the story and about getting lost in the story and, and giving yourself over as a listener to the story that's being told to you and not, not questioning its truth or otherwise, because that's not the point. And yet again, as I said, he's, he's always yeah. demanding to know the truth. And then, and then here you get like, well, actually he was telling you stories all along in exactly the manner that you said stories work. And then here, the truth is a, is a, it's not totally divorced from the stories he's been told, but it's much simpler. The resolu- it has resolutions, the actual story, in ways that the, that Rora's versions don't. That's right. And there's a really fantastic uh, bit about stories. So another sort of subtext of the novel all the way through is about a Brick and his wife. Mm-hmm. And their relationship has clearly kind of died and that's also something that might need resurrecting or to be resurrected and see what happened. But there's a fantastic story that he tells her at a, at a wedding about the, uh, the Berlin mm-hmm. Wall. And it seems to be significant. It's about the, the, the Berlin Wall, so the crux of the Cold War. And the Bosnian version is that the rabbits on one side keep trying to burrow through the wall to get to mate with rabbits on the other side. And it leads to all sort of uh, the guards being very trigger happy. But then his wife just says, well, that doesn't sound very likely. I find that hard to believe, she says. And then she gives reasons why it's unlikely to be true. And there's a terrible kind of moment. And he says, never could I tell a story in Mary's presence after that. And so there's a kind of moment where you get these two different sorts of stories. One can be evidenced and make sense and judged by something outside themselves Mm-hmm. by the historical record or by common sense, and the others are judged by the, the storiness of the story, um, like the jokes you talk about. And that seems to be a really interesting tension th- throughout the novel. And I kept thinking, in the Lazarus section, is it, to use the framework of the novel, is it kind of Bosnian exaggeration or is it American fact-telling? And and I... and. It seems to be a really interesting tension. You just you just don't know. Yeah, so I've got a complicated response to that, I guess. Um, and the direct answer to your question, I suppose, is that it's 
like part of this is that there is a, there is a factual record of of Lazarus Averbuch and what happened, and and he's using that source material yeah. to tell a story. But like like a lot of things that that factual account doesn't add up in a satisfying way, right? Like the rabbits in the Berlin Wall can just mate with the other rabbits in the in in the no man's land of the Berlin Wall doesn't add up in a satisfying way. <laughs> And so them trying to burrow under the wall to mate with West German rabbits is is a you know a a fiction or or an embellishment or a that that tries to tell you something else about what what the facts can't seem to portray and and there's i mean that's i guess one of the impulses behind the thing that you mentioned earlier about the this kind of mode of of writing factual stories and telling the story of it, the fabrication of the factual story. Um, it's also one of the motivations behind writing a, you know, a fact-based fictional work. Yeah. But then, but then the other thing is like, well, okay, but what does, what's the actual layered um, nuanced meaning of those tensions? And this is like, this is me doing a lot of, um, <laughs> I think stretching, but I don't, I don't think it's actually stretching. I, I think there's three points in this novel where, where deliberately or not, that tension is kind of put on display or the, the reason for approaching these stories in these ways are put on display in, in isolated moments. And so in my edition, those, those moments are on page 44, on page 105, and page 208. And they're all different things. And they, and they kind of pull... I think the Ukrainian Bosnian aspects of the story, the the Lazarus project part of the story and the Chicago parts of the story, which belong in part to the Lazarus project part and part to the Lazarus Averbook story, pull them together. And so the first one is when they, when Rora and Brick first go out to try and kind of, they wander around the places in Chicago where Lazarus Averbuch would have lived and, and the things would have happened. And um, this, is a, this is a paragraph that, that starts to explain this. It'll be familiar to people from Chicago as well, the, the, the kind of politics of what's happening here, which is quite complicated. But anyway, we crossed erected bridges. Bri- I can't read. We crossed erected bridges on our way to Maxwell Street past arbitrary stop signs, drove by ghastly warehouses that were to be converted into ghastly lofts. We followed a people's energy truck into Chicago's new great neighborhood where the ghetto once stood. Nothing from the days of Lazarus survived. Among glassy buildings and condemned church spires, there were colossal crane skeletons. Money castles rose over the space where the Maxwell Street Market used to be, where Lazarus's times peddlers had peddled and liquefied rot had clotted in the gutters, where the streets used to teem with people and gossip used to spread like flu. Here children had grown up. Here families had lived on different floors of the same tenement, sorted by generations, yet often dying out of order. Children first, grandparents last. Here the English language taught by charitable church-going American ladies had been transformed by their students into a sonorous mess of old world inflections. It goes on and on. Um, it's a long paragraph, and I don't want to take up our time reading the whole thing. But um, at the end, they don't take any pictures because um, there's just nothing there of Lazarus to see. And what's interesting is this yeah. this place and the layers of story and history in this one place, Maxwell Street, because it's the same area where 
you see the tail end of it in the Blues Brothers film when they go into the diner and they're outside and, and you have... Aretha Franklin. Yeah, but before that, you have outside you have um, John Lee Hooker um, playing playing on sitting on an amplifier yeah. and playing and it's and it and that was just before they tore down you know the rest of maxwell street market so it develops into this other thing and it's, it's a kind of cradle of the electric blues and but the market you know lasted until they until they tore it down to expand the university and there's i mean there's a whole story there but none of that is there it's all just what's left now and these layers have kind of been effaced and he's trying to see them and trying to understand them. And he's and telling the story is partly about trying to do that. And then it's, but that's about a place and that's about the layers that exist in, historically and, and store and, and, and in story between brick and Lazarus and what he can, the kind of problem that faces him in trying to uncover and trying to tell a story. But then on page 105, he says, a, a, "This is where he's gone. He's he's looking at a um, in a cemetery in Ukraine. A human face consists of other faces, the faces you inherited or picked up along the way, or the ones you simply made up, laid on top of each other in messy superimposition. And this is a kind of version of that Maxwell Street thing put into the." Um, the face of a person and he's talking about the layers of generations and and, ex and yeah. also the layers of experience that inform an individual so the face is here kind of a i suppose a metaphor a symbol for 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 identity and 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 how one understands oneself so that's part of the piece it's not just about the place maxwell street in that first example is in but it's also about this person and the individual and then on page 208 there in sarajevo Again, this place that he left before the siege and has is trying to re-understand, I suppose, himself. But he um, he says this. He says, when I went to Sarajevo a couple of years ago, I said, I found out that if I looked into the faces of the people, I saw what they used to look like. I saw their old faces, not their new faces. And when I walked among the prettied up ruins and bullet riddled facades, I saw what they used to be, not what they were now. I x-rayed through the visible and saw... I was the original past version. I couldn't see the now, only the before. And I had the feeling that if I could really see what it really looked like now, I would forget what it was before. God damn it, Brick, you like to listen to yourself. How does your wife put up with it? Um, but that's really profound to me, um, that moment, because it ties the other two things together, right? He's seeing the faces and he's seeing through uh, the experiences that he doesn't understand. And he's, and, and he, and he's seeing through their contemporary faces to their past. And he's seeing through the ruined buildings through to the, what they used to be. And in Maxwell street, he can only see what's there now. Cause he doesn't know that other stuff. And I just think it's a, that, that illustrates the tensions of these storytellings and the, and starts to point you towards why you, why you tell stories in this way. Anyway, that was a very long answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So can I, can I say a few things about that? So I want to say some small things and some big things. So just kind of in passing, that long paragraph you read about Maxwell Street just shows you one of the things that's brilliant about this novel is the kind of density of it. So just in those few lines you read, you've got all sorts of uh, images and and histories and all put together just brilliantly. So money castles rose over the space. You know exactly what he means mm -hmm. by a money castle and everything summoned up in that image. 
and we know it's like an old European image, like a castle, as well as a new American one put together so brilliantly. And with the faces to the second one about in the graves. So, but my so my thought about that is, I'll come to your third passage in a second. Is that uh, when I was younger, I thought that writers would be able to say kind of everything, and now it seems to me, and it seems to be one of the things in this novel, that there are things that that language or writers can't get to. And and I wonder with the Maxwell Street example, whether the whether he's whether he's pointing to the fact that you cannot articulate some kinds of human experience or pastness in language, or whether he's suggesting that by digging through and kind of archaeology you can get to those things. And similarly with the faces, I, I take the point about kind of digging through the faces and people's experience. But it seems to me there are kind... So now I believe, in a way that I didn't, that there are human experiences that you can talk about, but you can't properly put into writing. And those might be experiences of pain or of atrocity or of grieving, maybe. And then the third passage, in relation to what I've just said, is really interesting so he says that he's going, He's in Sarajevo, he's seeing them through with his kind of X-ray, seeing the past version, but in seeing the past version, he can't see the present. So in that one, he's saying you can kind of get through the, you can see with your X-ray eyes through the visible to the past, but in seeing the past, you can no longer see the And vice present. versa. Yeah, that's still a kind of stuckness, yeah. isn't it? So, so it's it's almost it's almost the the question is like how do you get from there to here or from here to there and that's where that's where things are stuck and that's where although he takes a journey through Ukraine and Sarajevo he doesn't kind of get get there. Well, you get the impression through that journey to Sarajevo that Brick he goes in almost like naively, like he gets so he gets this big grant to go and do this travels and he's excited about it and he you know he can do this put together this story that he's been desperate to put together. And you get this sense that he kind of goes into it pretty naively thinking, oh, I'll go and experience some things and I'll be able to finally put this all together. And and what he keeps realizing, and again, this is part of the the stories that he's being told by his friend are about, is like he's just accumulating more stories that he has to try and triangulate against each other. And, and, if you have so like if you have the two stories in the Sarajevo passage we j- were just talking about, it's fairly it's fairly straightforward to see how that works and what the problems are. You can either look through things to the past and miss what's in front of you, or you can look at what's in front of you and no longer see the past. That's complicated but easy to get your imagination around. But when you start to triangulate all these other different aspects, you know, at one point he says early on that Bosnian is a citizenship, not an ethnicity. And then a lot of the book is yeah. a, is about um, ethnic cleansing, uh, the consequences, the lived consequences of ethnic cleansing, the, the, the practical lived co- individual consequences yeah. of that. And, and so there's, there's something complicated that you have to then try and look in a couple of different ways 
at and also look at the past and the present and also look at the Chicago and the Sarajevo and also look, you know, it just the things pile up. And trying to keep that into a unified whole is really difficult. It's, you know, you're looking at all those generations of faces, but it's not just a person. It's a whole bunch of people. It's a whole cultures of people. It's whole experiences and histories. Um, and he seems desperate to try and keep them, try and find a way to to make them cohere. And I can understand why. And it's part of what makes yeah. this book so good is that he he's constantly upfront about trying to do that, I suppose. Uh, and, and that leads me to, to think two things. One is that in that simple, straightforward way, it doesn't cohere. I mean, that's one of the things that makes the book work in that mm-hmm. it doesn't have nice, simple answers to things. And it's not all, I went to Sarajevo and discovered this and it was all all right. It's quite the opposite of that. But actually, all the way through, and I really noticed it this time, is his emphasis, exactly as you said, on, on telling, on story making, on what kind mm-hmm. of stories we make. So one of the recurring tropes is... Lazarus's sister trying to write to her mother about what's happened. Yeah. And she begins seven or eight letters in her imagination. And then Brick starts doing that to talk to his wife or to other people, imagining how you might write. And in fact, they're not being the right words to, to say. And in fact, all the way through, I kept thinking, ah, oh, people are telling stories all the time here. I mean, there are some really obvious examples. So the, the Miller journalist there's also a journalist called Miller in the Lazarus section who invents a huge, invents and embroiders a huge story about anarchists and he gives Olga, the sister, a kind of, what do I want to call it, a kind of faux newspaper dignity in mourning that she doesn't really feel. So he's embroidering this huge story just as the police I want to, interge- I want to interject for a moment on that Sorry. because yeah. I think it's... No, no, it's fine. Uh, so like, there's William P. Miller, the Chicago Tribune... Or not Tribune, sorry. It's like the the forerunner to the Tribune uh, journalist who tells this like virulently anti uh, well anti Semitic and and xenophobic and lurid kind of tabloid tale of uh, of the of the attempted assassination on Shippy, which is nothing of the sort. It's very similar actually to what happens in this is just an aside, but it's very similar to what happens in uh, native son to bigger thomas where like this this yeah. incident happens and and the and the media storm creates this lurid story about him and about what happened uh, that in 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 native son bears more relation to the truth than than it does in this one but the truth is much more slippery in this novel than than that as well but so there's that and yeah and yeah you've you've characterized how he creates the sister and then there's william miller so william P. Miller, the Lazarus story journalist, is doing this kind of tabloid thing. And then there's William Miller, the New York Times journalist in the Lazarus Project story or in Rora's stories within the Lazarus Project story, who is yeah. is an interesting foil because he's he he seems to think he's a more like we kind of sneer at a little bit at, at the William P. Miller because because they get these long quoted passages from, from his articles and they're, and they're, they're so wide of what's going on. And he's so embedded in the police department that he's got no perspective or, or doesn't want to even have a perspective on what's actually going on. But William Miller, the New York times journalist is the same just from, and it, you know, he's so excited about his being embedded with this big gangster, this Serbian gangster that he, that, that he's not 
offering any perspective. You never get to hear any of his yeah. journalism either. He's a totally mute character. He's he's just a, a a character in this in this stories being told. Uh, and and I also think that both those journalists work as a kind of. I mean, we're told. Brick says, oh, there's American narratives that are kind of true and Bosnian ones that are exaggerated. But in fact, that works as a kind of critique of American narratives mm-hmm. because they're also completely kind of exaggerated and Yeah, yeah. And made it's up. just that the, the expectation or the assumption is that they're true. Yeah. It's a different assumption whatever you're bringing to it. And But that was me cutting you off <laughs> your oh, points. Yeah. Do carry on. So one of the recurring tropes in the novel is is just people telling stories. There's always stories and stories within stories and stories about stories. And there's a, the the jokes you talk about and the letters. And also people are always giving accounts to each other about things. And some of the stories are fake. So Olga, the sister, meets a is kind of uh, taken away from the police by a, a strange uh, Jewish business person who turns out to have kind of quite complicated motives that he constantly lies about so it's it's full of these stories being told and i i think that what holds it together is exactly the kind of there must be a better word the storifying so you're presented with lots and lots of these different stories and -hmm. you're kind of invited to to judge the different kinds of stories that you're constantly getting yeah and who's telling them so the yeah. Tauber, the Jewish businessman, um, he's trying to basically manipulate Olga into doing things that Lazarus's sister into doing things that will be of benefit to the, you know, the sort of mainstream acculturated Jewish community of Chicago, and and she's not really having it. <laughs> yeah. She. Um, she just won't she she sees through him and at one point he he says oh you know think of think of the pogroms and and what happened and and how we don't want to repeat that again and and she calls him out in a, in a really interesting way because she, he hasn't experienced it and she has and she says never never speak to me of of the pogroms you know um he's from vienna he's there's a point it's made that he speaks um german and in a Viennese accent. And she at first refuses yeah. to speak German to him. She replies to everything he says in Yiddish. There's an interesting thing with the languages in which stories are told in this novel and how, how Haman, the author reports those languages because the, the languages of the official languages, basically and languages of empire, German, Russian, um, Ukrainian, when they're in Ukraine, uh, English are, are put in quotation marks and the other languages, yeah. the sort of the secondary or minor or oppressed or whatever you want to say, languages are always done without. So like in Ukraine, Brick and Rora speak to each other in Bosnian and it's, there's never quotation marks around it. And then when he's yeah. speaking to somebody in Ukrainian, there are. It's, it's, it, I think it's just a really small, clever, interesting textural thing that, that he does. And, and so she's saying these things to him in German you know, he's telling her about her own experience and, and he becomes a kind of foil, but not an exact one for Brick, you know, like wanting, not having had this direct experience and, and not understanding, you know, the difference is that Brick wants to understand and has a, has a sympathy for understanding and an empathy and, and sees these layers of faces, whereas Tauba is more cynical. 
but it's still an interesting, it's another one of those little pieces that you have to see through to several sides of in order to see the whole. And it's very, that's another very difficult thing to do. And it's, and it's the role of the stories to come back to your main point. It's the role of the stories in these, in this overall story and how many of them Olga is constantly writing as I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I wanted, yeah. to, I wanted to bring it up at almost exactly the same point. She, she, she tries to tell her mother that everything's fine. She tries to tell her mother that Lazarus is dead and she can never do it in any way that gets to the bottom of what actually is going on because also because she can't understand. And then we're also kind of warned about stories. So one of the things that I think is really moving is that in the outside toilet that Olga and Lazarus uh, have, there's a a Russian English dictionary and Olga is sitting in the toilet, uh, kind of getting out of the way of the police, but also kind of struck with grief. And she's reading the, L section they were at, so it's lout, lovable, love, lovely, lover, low, lower, low, low, lowly, lord, lord, what I've done, and, and so, and then two pages later, she's back with the L's, look, loom, lose, and so you, you get a kind of, you get a, the, just the dictionary words start to become a story, like look, loom, lose, and that's what that's what's happened to, to the Avonbrook family, I guess. And um, so we're also being, I always think of that Nietzsche remark about, you know, human beings are condemned to meaning. So in the Lazarus Project, we're condemned to these stories all the time, even though the stories sometimes work and sometimes don't. And I just think that's, I think that's such a powerful, I mean, that's a powerful thing that holds it together. And I know that sounds, that sounds the sort of thing literary critics say that, you know, it's held together by the very act of storytelling, but it really it really is. So you, I thought you were going to keep going. No, no, I've, I've just finished with enthusiasm. It, it really, it, <laughs> and some jazz hands that the <laughs> listeners will never see. Um, yeah, it's it. I th- I think that the what I'm about to respond with is is kind of gets into the why that storytelling is all we have. He's, he's so I'm on page two thirty five. They. They're um, in the cemetery, and he says, some part of my life ended there among those empty graves. It was then that I started mourning. I can tell you, you that now, now that there is little but mourning. And it's like this, the stories are partly the way to articulate something that is that is otherwise unarticulable. We've, we've, we've talked about that quite a bit already, even though they don't quite get you there. You know, the, the mourning there is about the, exactly about the, that unarticulable grief that you were talking about yeah, yeah. a few minutes ago, and it, and in fact the the grave the grave they look at says Avabok Isaac nineteen oh one nineteen thirteen, mm-hmm. and like I said, right the first line of the novel is the time and place the only things I'm certain of. Yeah. So that I mean the Avabok Isaac nineteen oh one nineteen thirteen is a kind of narrative which is kind of certain, and that's all there is. So there are some kind of. There are some facts and dates, but only a tiny amount in a huge kind of penumbra of uncertainty and grief and fear and anxiety. Yeah, this this is going to bring me to, I'm going to slide down the page a little, that same page a little further, and then connect it to the jokes that Rora tells and one Please. other thing, because that's the other piece of storytelling puzzle that we we need to put into this. He says, um, so they, they get lost in the cemetery a bit 
Um, it took a while to find a way out. Rora's hair was sweat pasted to his skull and neck, a great oval of perspiration growing on his back. The closer we got to the exit, the bigger it was. And again, I thought, that's me. The thought bounced in my head deliriously. I couldn't get to the end of it, could not fold it up into meaning. Juliana walked behind. I heard she's their guide. I heard her gentle panting. She was me. Rora was me. And then we came upon the man on the bench, drooling asleep, his mouth open enough for us to see a graveyard of teeth, his hand wedged inside his pants waist. And he was me too. The only one who was not me was myself. Then, it, you know, he's he's struggling to put together, you know, a picture of of how to make an, a coherent understanding out of these things. And part of the way you do that is by going out of yourself and, you know, the empathizing with other people, but it's, but that's not quite sufficient enough either. And this is to me, the key joke that Rora tells him. He tells all these stories about these jokes about Mujo and Suljo at various points. There's five or six of them in the, in the novel. And this to me on page two, three, seven is the one that's most important. Mujo left Sarajevo and went to America to Chicago. He wrote regularly to Suljo, trying to convince him to come, but Suljo did not want to, reluctant to leave his friends and his kafana. Finally, after a few years, Mujo convinces him, and Suljo flies over the ocean, and Mujo waits for him at the airport with a huge Cadillac. They drive downtown from the airport, and Mujo says, See that building a hundred stories high? I see it, Suljo says. Well, that's my building. Nice, Suljo says. And see that bank at the bottom floor? I see it. That's my bank. And see that silver Rolls Royce parked in the front? I see it. That's my Rolls Royce. Congratulations, Suljo says. You've done well for yourself. They drive to the suburbs and Mujo points at a house as big and white as a hospital. See that house? That's my house, Mujo says. And see the pool, Olympic size by the house? That's my pool. There's a gorgeous, curvaceous woman sunbathing by the pool. And there are three healthy children happily swimming in it. See that woman? That's my wife. And those children are my children. Very nice, Suljo says. But who is that brawny, suntanned young man massaging your wife? Well, Mujo says, that's me. Um, <laughs> and that joke is really funny. But also it's part, it's like, it's this, how do you, you know, that it's, it's, the, it's the same story that he's, he experiences in the, in the cemetery, just in a, in a, you know, different setting and everything. But it's, it's there's like some, cool. yeah. And, and it's, something about how how do you imagine yourself how does how you imagine yourself in a situation in a in a strange situation some of them enforced some of them by choice how does how do you make coherence of that and on page 257 he says he's talking he's he's talking about the dreams that he that he has he says um we did it in Chicago, though once or twice we got together in Sarajevo, too. Everything was always taking place before the war, though we always knew it was coming. From such dreams, I woke up bereaved. For the we, whoever we were, the we could could never be assembled but in a dream. And I think this is the, the third part of those three things. It's like, there's that's me. I want that to be me. The only one who's not me is me. How do I turn all these me's into we how can i be watching the man massaging my wife and also be the man massaging my wife only yep. in a dream only in a story yeah so i completely agree with that so i think that 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 joke the that's me joke is really significant i mean not only because brick feels a kind of imposter in his marriage and a post imposter in chicago and also an imposter back in in sarajevo in a way 
And as you say, you can only get it in a dream or a dream or a story. Uh, and that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to storify the whole thing. But the story kind of doesn't kind of doesn't work. We would never be assembled but in a dream. Picking out that line makes me think of those great writers like Ngugi who say, you know, we must be the Shakespeare for our people. We must tell a story that in, embraces everything. But I think the reason he can't do that is is revealed, again, by another recurring trope, which, again, occurs on this, this pages which we've been talking about. It's on 236. It's, it's right after the cemetery scene that you discussed. And he says, he says to the guide, tell me, Juliana, I said, envisioning her hand in my hand. Tell me, what is this world about, life or death? Rora looked at me with a knowing smile, but what it was he knew I did not know. That's the crucial thing, because Rora has, has experience. That's a very strange question, she said. What do you mean? Is this world for the dead or for the living? Do you think there are more dead than living people? Why do you worry about that? And then he goes on, if there are more dead than living, then the world is about death. And the question is, what are we to do with all the death? Who is going to remember all the dead? But then a little bit later on, Juliana says, I think it's about life. I think there's always more life than death. And this this question about is the world for the living or for the dead uh, and our, the kind of role of memory or the role of life is, again, it goes right the way through the whole book. And Olga, uh, Lazarus's sister, asks it. And we're constantly being asked to 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 kind of balance, not, no, not being asked to balance. We're being shown a kind of memorial and the weight of, the memory of the dead, and we're being shown the carelessness and the thoughtlessness of the living. And those two, they like in a less good novel, those two would match up or there'd be some kind of resolution. And here there is no resolution because if you like, the the brick character can't work out what the what the right answer is. He can't choose what the right answer is. And I think that's I think that's really, I mean, that's one of the reasons it's a great piece of writing because it doesn't give you a pat answer to anything to this key question. Is life about the, is the world for the dead or for the living? And I, I just think, and that's also why there are so many, uh, I mean, there are lots of kind of comic scenes of people being thoughtless in, in the present. And I kept thinking, and then some of those are jokes and some of those are terrible stories. I think, why is he telling all these stories? And partially it's to illustrate that Bosnian way of telling stories. And partially it's because to show the thoughtlessness of the living, like the man who shoots, like the, you say, the junkie who shoots his friend in the end. It's exactly the thoughtlessness of the living about living and death. Whereas it's, it's, it is as if, as if the dead think only about the dead and quite often characters say oh well god deals with the dead or the dead will look after the dead but again the the whole point of the book the lazarus project is about the 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 mixing up of the living and the dead and and how you know what happens when the dead speak to us or what happens if you're dead and come back to life or how you make the dead live and and it's it's so the book is trying trying to trying to answer or resolve that tension between the living and the dead and it just can't yeah and it's what makes it such a rich novel such an exciting novel to read and such a so i mean this is maybe the third time i've read this novel and it like going back to it and rereading it was just as good as as 
the first time I read it because there's just more and more things um, seep out of it and give you more and more of a picture to think about and puzzle over and and feel like really moved by as well. This seems like a great place to to end our our conversation. And I I have one more thing to say. Though. Okay, we could okay, have, no, if you hadn't interrupted me, we could have um, edited the one more thing you had to say in. So go ahead and say it. So I was also really struck by the religion in it. So there's there's lots of kind of failed religion. They're very aware about the genocide of of Muslims, and they're aware there's kind of fake Christianity and hypocrites, all those sorts of things. And of course, there's pogroms and Jews, and there's lots of religion all the way through, which is obviously a crucial part of the war in former Yugoslavia. Um, and it, it and it, it's and it's called the Lazarus Project, which is a re- religious kind of image. And yet, and I was, I'm stuck with the with the epigraph. Uh, which is from the Gospels. When he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with rags. So we think about all the terrible things that the dead have gone through. And the face was covered with a cloth. And again, that's like that's almost an epigraph for the novel because the, the, you can't see the faces. They're always kind of covered. And it seemed to me that would be... that. I mean, that would a pat answer to all these problems would be a religious answer mm-hmm. and the book goes out of its way to uh, to not do that and i think that's really really powerful that's a really powerful it's a kind of really powerful bit of way of thinking about the resolution of stories and how we can't resolve them it's it's in the last sentence of that that epigraph jesus saith unto them loose him and let him go all you can do is loose yeah. him and let him go and there's no, you know, there's no resolution. Yeah. Robert Eagleson, I want to thank you so much for joining me to talk to me about The Lazarus Project by Alexander Hamon. Um, it was a really great, interesting conversation. We could go on and on and on, but we will wrap it up there. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Doug. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.